This audio recording is of Restoration Road's regular Sunday service, October 1st, 2017. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. letter to Titus, and we'll be in chapter 2, the first 10 verses, and I'll read those now. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Amen. This is God's Word. We are going through the book of Titus, and we are talking about what it means to be a good church. Now, a good local church, church is not necessarily a big church. It's not even necessarily an influential church. It's not necessarily a cool church. Big or small, influential or unknown, cool or lame, a good church is necessarily one thing, a faithful church, a faithful church. Now, Titus is this letter to a pastor who is charged with helping further establish a bunch of new church plants on this island called Crete. And he is called to help these church plants become better organized and to ultimately become established as good, faithful churches. And so as we make our way through this kind of church plant manual of sorts, Paul has shown from the first chapter all the way to where we are today that a good church begins with a good God who saves bad people through his one and only good son named Jesus Christ. And then he gathers his kids together into churches, into assemblies, into local families led by good leaders whose lives and leadership are shaped by by the good doctrine of the gospel. Bad leaders deny the gospel in what they teach and in how they live. Good leaders are not the most skilled or best organized or greatest speakers, but they are the ones who understand the gospel, believe the gospel, live the gospel, and trust the gospel for their lives. And the letter, as we read, gets more and more specific 
And in chapter 2, it shifts from talking about leaders and elders of the church and begins to talk about the members of the church. Because when you read pastoral epistles, so First and Second Timothy and Titus, there's pastoral epistles. And it's easy to be somewhat maybe dismissive of those and go, well, I'm not a pastor, so this isn't for me. But the reality is, it is for you. And specifically, he speaks to members of the church who aren't necessarily elders or even leaders in the church, though how they live will certainly provide leadership. But when you consider all the things he tells the church, all the things that Paul is going to say, this is important for a good church, I think it's noteworthy to consider the things that he doesn't say. The kinds of things that I, as a, as a pastor, I, as a church planter, when you go, okay, what does it take to plant a church? What is necessary for a good church? The things that come to mind, maybe at first, as you evaluate what's a good church and what would be necessary for a church, and not the things that Paul would talk about. Our mind might be led to things like buildings, service times, programs. Do we have Sunday school? What's that like? Worship styles. When are we going to take communion? Those kinds of pragmatic things. What we see is that for most of the letter, Paul is actually less focused on pragmatics and more focused on relationships. What do the relationships within the church look like? Relationships between the members and the leaders, the members and the members, and all and everybody with God. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 2, where Mark read, he tells Titus, Paul tells Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Instruct what accords or what goes along with or what works out from healthy doctrine. It's, again, important to understand that this is a personal letter to Titus. It's addressed to Titus. It's written to a guy who is working for Paul. But it's not a private letter. And what I mean by that, it's beyond question, historically, that this letter was to be and was read publicly for the entire church to hear. So you think about that. This personal letter to Titus will be read publicly. So not only would the church hear what they were called to do, they'd also hear what Titus was responsible to do and what their elders were responsible. There'll be no secrets. This letter is, is less of a letter that's just giving instructions to a pastor about how to pastor a church and more really about a letter to the church about how to be the church that God has called us to be and try really hard not to separate the church from you. The church is us. The church is a people locally gathered together, an assembly of people. So when we say the church, it's not like, yeah, the church should be doing that. You're talking about you, right? I remember when I was a high school teacher and kids would be like, yeah, the spirit of the school sucks. I'm like, you're the school, right? So when we talk about the church, we have a tendency to separate ourselves from that. No, this is what we are called to be. We are called to do as members of God's church, of God's family in this place. Now, in the first chapter, we saw really that godly leadership are those who were called and had gospel-shaped character. And now we see that a good church 
also has godly members that are committed to developing gospel-shaped character in one another. And the, the, you know what that's called? Discipleship. Discipleship. Now, Matthew 28, where I think or hope you are at this point, verse 18. I'm, I'm going to tell you something that's really like obvious, but I love to tell obvious things. Jesus couldn't have been any more clear about what our responsibility was in this life before we're dead. Right? His disciples, he's risen from the dead. He spent some time with his disciples. He hasn't quite ascended to heaven. And he tells his disciples, hear what you're going to do next. Matthew chapter 28. And you've heard this before, I'm sure. And we almost hear things too much or so much that it becomes hackneyed, so overused that it becomes meaningless. Matthew 28, 18, it says this, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus. Go therefore. Go. As you go. But therefore, go. Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Go make disciples. And he's not just talking to the leaders or pastors or elders of the church. He's talking to what is the church at this point. Go make disciples. And when you consider, like when you think, okay, go make disciples. I'm supposed to make disciples. What, is, what does that mean? What is this thing called discipleship? How, do, how are disciples made? How are Christians matured? Or, or how is the church built up? Like when you consider answers to these questions... I think the average person, the average Christian, wrongly believes that this is about a class taught exclusively by a pastor or a formal program for qualified Christians. That's our tendency to believe, like, when we make disciples, yeah, well, we put them in this class. I bring them to church and have the pastor yell at them. Like, that's what we do, right? That's discipleship. See, in our ever-growing world, which we have an amazing world, and we have a world that's more connected, and yet disconnected, but technologically more connected than any time in history, and that allows us to have access to all kinds of, of uh, resources and teaching all over. But I wonder if our ever-growing world of what I've called conference clergy and podcast pastors has actually perpetuated our spiritual adolescence. And what I mean by that is that God didn't design the church to be polarized around one pastor or one preacher or one teacher. While there are elders that are called and responsible to be able to teach and there are gifted teachers even among those elder teams who are called to preach, you know what the writer of Hebrews says, which I think is very interesting? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, he rebukes those he's speaking to, and he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers. Now he's not talking to pastors and elders. He's talking to the church. By this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Now, 
I didn't say this, someone else did, but I thought it was a very interesting observation. I've heard it said that a one-year-old breastfeeding is cute, a 30-year-old breastfeeding is disturbing, right? This idea that, that we're not maturing as we ought. And I wonder sometimes if that's a choice as opposed to a natural result of anything. See, more than any other time, we have more access to more great teachers and more great teaching. But I think sometimes that's led perhaps the average Christian, if you consider yourselves average, to believe that discipleship is the work and responsibility of the ordained or super-trained Christians with titles and knowledge and skill. But the truth is, according to Titus 2, if every church is responsible for discipleship and every Christian must be engaged in some way in disciple making. And again, because our default mode is like, I can't lead Bible studies, I can't lead a program. Let me just help you understand what the New Testament picture of discipleship is so maybe it can calm some of those fears and wipe out some of the excuses. The New Testament plan, program for disciple making is simple. One person helps another person follow Jesus who helps another person follow Jesus. That's it. I'm not sure what we're going to call that ministry. Maybe just discipleship. Okay? Like Titus, and this is where, again, we're going to push back because we have such a consumer culture. It's just everywhere. We have a culture where I can literally right now, point and click and buy almost anything with a click. We are looking for goods and services. And so we come to the church and we go, well, the pastor is the one who's supposed to disciple and teach. But that's not what Titus is told. Like we just take what the Bible says. Titus is not charged with doing all the discipleship by Paul. He's not even charged like appoint elders and leaders who will do all the discipleship. On the contrary, he's charged with instructing the members, the different members, the older men and older women and younger men and younger women, like the people of the church to fulfill their callings as a Christian and live in accord with sound doctrine. In other words, he's like, help the church live out their belief in the gospel this way. That's what he's told to do. Now, I told you to turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, one of my favorite books and favorite passages in that book. Just to make this point really clear. And what I'm trying to do is not excuse myself from responsibility to disciple as one of the pastors here, but to call us all to a place where we see this is our responsibility, my, as in you speaking, responsibility, and what does that look like? Ephesians 4 says this, speaking about the church, he says, and he gave, the Lord gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers, what for? To equip the saints, the Christians, for the work of ministry. Whoa! Hold on! I thought ministry was the pastor's job. Do you see what that's saying? What it's saying is that my ministry, the elder's ministry, is to equip you 
for ministry. My ministry is to help you be disciple makers by discipling you to be disciple makers. And then it goes on though. Until, I'm sorry, equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So the purpose is to build up the body until we all, so I'm included in that, I'm being discipled just as you're being discipled. Are the pastor in discipleship? Yeah! If you think I got everything figured out, you're nuts. I have places to grow as a dad, as a father, as a man, as a pastor, and you help disciple that as I disciple you and I get discipled. Come on! We. So we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to what point? To mature manhood. What do you mean? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, so we're maturing in Christ. Why would I need to be mature in Christ? Oh good, he tells us. So that, I love this. The Bible's so clear. So that, okay, so we're equipping for ministry. Everyone's building up, maturing to manhood. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every freaky teaching that comes along. Oh, that's not there. Every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, doing what? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who's the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, that's us, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly. Uh Uh-oh. So if there's a body, and we're all members of it, and the church builds up and grows as each member, body part, is working properly, we begin to ask ourselves, am I working properly in the body? If I'm the hand, am I lame? Or am I doing my hand stuff? Whatever that is, right? Because when you are doing that, what it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Wait, wait. That like means we're really connected and if I engage in this or don't, then I have effect on everybody. Yeah. Now, my point in bringing that up is just to say simply this. The elders, the leaders, the programs, the ministries are not responsible to do the heart of ministry in the church, which is discipleship. One doesn't have to be an elder or a deacon or a Bible study leader to contribute to the work of ministry. In fact, the life of the church, the health of the church, the growth of the church, and I don't just mean size, because Paul doesn't talk about size. He didn't care less about size. I'm talking about depth of maturity. So the growth of the church is more dependent upon individual members living a gospel-centered life than its leaders running programs, starting ministries, or teaching Bible studies. Some members, without question, will be called to some form of godly leadership, but all members are called to lead through godly living. The pastoral letters provide us really specific stuff. It gives us guidelines for how individual members who don't have office, who don't have title, how they fulfill their role in the church. And it gets very specific, right? Because it says, beginning in verse 2, older men. 
All right, fellas. Now, you'll notice it doesn't say old men, right? Because then you'd be like, I'm not an old man, or oh, it's me, right? <laughs> older men, implying something that there are those older and those younger. So I'm an older man to somebody. My 16-year-old's an older man to my 13-year-old. You see how clever Paul is? Huh? Younger men, I'm younger than somebody. And there's somebody younger than me. So it's talking about the relationships, not the categories. Like, oh, am I an old man now? Like, what? You never stop being an old man. And you never stop being a young man. And so none of this stuff stops applying to you. Uh-oh. Yeah, isn't that good? Super convicting. I love this passage. It's just going to like, whap, whap, just smack you all over. It's rad. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness. And then I'm going to add the younger men here. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled in everything. Show yourself, speaking to Titus as a younger man and an older man, as a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. You know what's beautiful about this? Like, this isn't like some concept. What do we do? How do we, how do we show people? He tell, teach someone to be self-controlled. It's very specific. Now, it applies in different ways, but it's not like, there's no guessing here. First, older men, you're, you're to set an example. You're to set an example in certain ways. Whatever an older man is, obviously I've kind of colored in a little bit. One thing's for sure, by the fact that it's called older, there comes a point when you no longer continued in what our culture has allowed as an extended kind of Peter Pan adolescence. I never want to grow up mentality. And I would argue that that's actually much younger than we think. We've allowed incredibly older people to continue in childish ways and say that's okay. When we should call our younger men to act like older men and our older men to act like older men. We have this weird adolescence that's continued into late 20s and 30s and beyond. We're like, grow up. Because you're setting an example for a people. Now, if you just show up and no one knows your name and they've never seen you, guess what? No one's watching you. But if you're here for any length of time and people get to learn your name, there's someone watching you. You're setting an example. And Paul's clear about the kind of example. You're to throw off childish things. You're to live sensibly with a mind set on the things of the Spirit, especially in a world where there's all kinds of spirits saying all kinds of things. You're to strive to be worthy of respect. And you do that by having a sound faith, sound love, and it says sound endurance. And I think that endurance piece, I think we can understand in many ways what it means to show how to love one another, how to love your wife, how to love your children, older men, how to love your brothers in Christ, how to love the ladies of this church like sisters. Sound faith. What does it look like to set your mind on the things of Christ? What does it look like to follow the commands of Christ as the Great Commission says? But sound endurance? 
What does it look like to suffer well? What does it look like to suffer in a way that honors God, to depend upon God? Did you know that people, older men, and I say older men with those with experience, with enough time where you could truly suffer in life, people are watching you? How does that guy suffer? How does he endure this difficulty? Really, what we're talking about is men setting an example of living a life ordered by the things of Christ, depending on Jesus and loving like Jesus and pointed to Jesus when things get hard. When tragedy strikes your life, nine times out of ten, if you're a member of this church, I'm going to be there. You know what my job is? It's the same job of you husbands and fathers, and I would say wives and mothers as well. It's to point to Jesus. It's not to come and say, I can fix it for you, because I can't. It's to have men, older men, saying, look, you endure by depending upon Him, by turning to Him, by leaning on Him. Older men don't set an example of saying, you just got to be strong. You just got to like gut it out, man. Toughen up. Be a man. Being a man is surrendering to the one man, Jesus. That's what being a man is. And that's the kind of example. But this isn't just an example, right? Paul's just not like, hey, just watch the older guys. See how they do it. That is happening. And the older men are supposed to urge the younger men, it says. So they're actually supposed to say, look, follow me as I follow Christ. They're supposed to open their mouths and say, this is how you live a self-controlled life. This is how you love your wife and your kids. This is how you set your mind on the things of Christ. They're supposed to teach. The pastor is not the only one who teaches in the church. I would argue that if you're getting all your teaching from the 45 minutes on a good day, from Sunday morning, you're missing out on all the teaching that can take place from the 300 people that go here. Way more teaching. But the younger men are to be urged by these older men to follow the example, their example as they follow Christ with instructions, with admonishments, with encouragements. And the younger men are to seek to show themselves an example of good deeds because someone is watching them. And I think it's particular to note that the young men are specifically told to guard their mouths. Because it seems like young people tend to get, and I say young people, including older people, men tend to get caught in youthful lusts that are often connected with the tongue. Their mouths get them in trouble. It's the bottom line. And now older ladies. Older ladies, and I say older, not old. Huh? They are likewise to be reverent in behavior, according to verse 3 through 5, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. And they go, well, really? The ladies are the ones hitting the sauce? That's what you're talking about? Right? They got to be told, like, hey, knock it off. Don't forget that the leaders of the church were already told that, which included the men. So it's to everybody. It's to everybody. They are to be able to teach, or they are to teach what is good, and so train, right? They are to teach what is good, 
not just by example, but by example. But they're to train. So train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Trigger word. I understand that. We'll, 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 touch, we'll address that. But similar to older men, right? The older women are called to the same thing. Set an example, respectful behavior in the community, in your family, but do so especially for the younger women. That's your target. And if you had read or if you read 1 Timothy, which is also like a church plant manual, chapter 5 specifically address women, widows, single moms, or just single women. And it's interesting how often he has to address in there the fact that these women had a tendency to become idle busybodies who spent more time gossiping about one another than they did about or talking about Jesus. So as an example, the older women, Titus is told to teach, are to avoid sinning with their words in person or online. It's almost easy not to do it in person these days because we're so connected. So I can slander someone online just like, this is what I'm feeling today. Not to suggest that women are any more guilty than men of doing that, but man, it's prevalent in our world today. There are Set an example to strive for restraint in the use of alcohol or chocolate. That's, that's there? Just restraint, indulgence in anything. They're charged to teach what is good in word and deed, train younger women to love their husbands and kids. And you go, why does Paul have to say that, right? I always ask questions like that. Like, out of all the things you could say, why that? And I would argue it's not because they stink at loving their husbands and kids because their husbands and kids are hard to love. And so guess what? They have to be encouraged. Yeah, I know. That's tough. He's a doofus. Love him. I know. You love your kids. Probably don't really like them right now, but love them. Okay? They're to encourage the younger women. Oh, let's take the off the shelf, the submissive. Okay. It does say be submissive to their own husbands. It doesn't say be submissive to men, number one. Number two, this word is so jacked up today and misunderstood. That even if I explain it, someone's not going to like it, so I'm just going with that. You need to understand this. The idea of submission cannot be taken out of context from teach what accords with sound doctrine, which is the gospel. So the gospel filter that's coming with submission, when a wife is told to submit to her husband, Jesus loved the church, right? And we are told as husbands to love your Christ as, love your Christ, love your wife as Christ loved the church and died for her, sacrificed for her, gotten his face in death for her. Women are called to submit to the husbands in the same way that Christ submitted. Go read Philippians 2. Though he's equal with the Father. Father. I don't know where that came from. Father. He submits in role and in glory and honor and praise of the Father. So this is not about who is better or who is worse. It is about the way God has designed marriage to bring glory 
to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you see that as you start to talk about slavery. That the whole purpose of it is to adorn the doctrine of our Savior. And so, if you want it to be about you, what you like or don't like, what is easy or not easy, I can understand how that word would be difficult. But it's not about you. It's about the Lord. And I'll make that point later. Older women to encourage younger women to strive for purity, which I think in our world today is probably best understood of striving for internal beauty that lasts as opposed to external beauty that fades. Women need to be told that, but not by a dude, right? And they're expected to grow in their faith, these younger women, and learn themselves to minister to other women. Because, right, the younger women are seeing the older women teach, and so the younger women are teaching. There's something happening there. And the younger women and the older women are to view their homes not as a prison, but as a tool for ministry through which to bless their families and to bless the family of God. I could certainly use my home as a tool for ministry. It would be way worse than if my wife took that tool and used it. Okay? We would not have enough food. We would have very uncomfortable things to sit on. And we'd have loud music and probably lots of other manly things. You come to my house because my wife managed it in such a way to actually make it a blessing to others, you'll be blessed. Okay? But taken all together, take all the older women and younger women, all the older men and younger men, and then take the, like, you know that they're actually all being called to the exact same things? Like, there's not like a category, well, if you're varsity and you're a leader, you got to live this way. If you're an older woman, you got to live, th- that's not, it's basically all the same. Go make a comparison chart. Even teaching. Everyone's teaching in some context. The body, not just the pastor, is called to make disciples. And without doubt, that doesn't make it easy. You know, the same root word for discipline and disciple, like, it's the same root word. Why is that? Because discipleship is hard. Point in fact, another pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy 4. Young pastor, verse 6, is told this. If you put these things before the brothers, so it's many of the same things Titus is told. It's like, if you put these things before the church, you, pastor, will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That gives me great comfort. I'm being a good servant, telling you what the Bible says. Take it up with God. It's rad. But they'll be trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Then he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Train. In case we didn't understand what that meant, right? For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also life to come. We have to be trained for godliness because Otherwise, we won't pursue godliness. There's a discipline to it. Just as someone works out, right? We have a very workout, idolatrous culture. 
where there's CrossFits on every corner and gym memberships and no one ever uses, right? Everyone's working out. Okay, we're working out. I'm strong, whatever. If you want to lose 25, 30 pounds, if you sit on your tush and never do anything, you will not lose 25 or 30 pounds. You will just get bigger or stay the same. The same is with godliness. In other words, godliness doesn't just happen. Discipleship doesn't just happen. When you decide to go to the gym and work out, you are making sacrifices. You're making sacrifices of time, sacrifices of diet, sacrifices of all kinds of things. That's no different than discipleship. And what Paul says is like, yeah, that's valuable. We should all not breathe heavy coming up the stairs. That's a good thing. But he says, godliness is a blessing in every way. In fact, what does he say? It holds promise for the present life and the life to come. So it takes discipline. I say, well, we're all supposed to do discipleship. I don't know if I got time for that. I understand that. It means you're going to have to make a sacrifice. Because discipleship is counterintuitive. You're like, eh, I don't know if I want to work out. All right? Think spiritually. I don't know if I want to spiritually work out. It's counter-calendar. Where am I going to fit that in? Right? And it's actually counter-cultural. Our culture isn't out there going, you know what? You should spend more time with Jesus, learning His ways and teaching others about Him. That's not what our culture tells us to do. Our culture says, you should spend more time on yourself binging on Stranger Things beginning October 27th. Right? But in order for discipleship to make it easier, right? Here's what I, like, when I work out, um, I, I actually work out. I know, you're like, come on, I do. <laughs> but I found that I work out better when I have a workout buddy, when someone's like, dude, we're going to work out, right? Otherwise, I'm like, I don't have a voice saying, you should work out. I have a voice saying, you should sit and eat that, right? <laughs> so, but there's certain things that make it easier. Certain things that make discipleship easier. One is, newsflash, relationship. It's hard to disciple strangers. Two is specific roles. I know that I'm learning from you. Right? We're not, hey, let's just get together and learn from each other. No, you have something to teach me, and I want to learn from you. And I'm either being invited or inviting, or someone's approaching me, and the other thing is there's actually a way, there's something to learn. It's not just, hey, let's just talk about spiritual things. No, let's talk about the specific things that as an older or younger man, I'm supposed to learn. There's a way. There are certain paths to walk. It's not like you sit down and go, well, I'm just really struggling to love my wife. How am I supposed to love her? You know, just, just, just don't make her mad. You know, just do whatever she... When she wants to do something, just say, yeah, it sounds good. That's not what the Bible says. Right? The Bible says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Love your wife in such a way to wash her with the Word of God. Like, there's some very specific things you're called to do. There's a way to walk. So here's maybe the question, like, well, what's the grand motivation behind this besides just good old-fashioned obedience? I'll do what you say, Jesus. Which is not a bad 
motivation. But I will say our reasons for doing discipleship can be just as sinful of our reasons not to. Like we have lots of excuses why we don't. Well, I don't have time. I don't have time to spend one-on-one time with somebody. And I just simply go, what is your calendar full of? Because when you get to the place where you go, we're talking about the commands of Jesus. Um, There's lots of things that we do in our lives that are not commanded by Jesus. Doesn't mean they're bad. But when those things start filling in the blanks to an extent where you can't actually do the things that the Lord's commanded you to, they might be bad. Some would say, I don't understand. That's my excuse. I don't do it because I don't know enough. I bet you know more than somebody. You might be surprised how much you know. I've sat down with people who have no clue um, how to read this at all. What's the Old Testament? What's the New Testament? Where is this book? What is this book about? And there are still people like that now that like, I, I don't know. I want to know, but I don't know. And then there's people that you know. And of course, I just don't have the desire. And I would say, well, do you need desire to be obedient? I mean, throw that up to Jesus. You know, I, I know you commanded us to serve and to love, but I just didn't want to. Let's see how well that goes over, right? But a lot of us have bad reasons for doing it, right? We'll, we'll do like, well, I want to feel good about myself. Bad reason. I want others to feel good about me. Bad reason. I want Jesus to give me that star on the chart. Bad reason. Because all those reasons are man-centered. You're like, the last thing we want is a man-centered church. And what's a man-centered church look like? It looks like everybody doing nothing and depending upon the pastor to do everything. Like a man-centered church isn't a community, but it's like a business with goods and services to help consumers. And the manager of this business, known as the pastor, is the only one in the view of the man-centered church authorized to share the gospel. So you meet somebody, and they're like, man, tell me about Jesus. You know, you need to come to church. No, you need to tell that person about Jesus right there. And if you can't, you need discipleship. Huh? See, I just got you. Like, whoa, dang it. How'd that happen? But these have this idea like, well, the pastor's the only one that can share the gospel. Or the only one that can counsel the customers. Or the only one who can minister to those in need, right? The, the man-centered church prides itself on growing programs so it can connect with new customers. And there's nothing really uniquely spiritual in the man-centered church. Pragmatics are king and scripture is a slave of that. But a God-centered church works very differently. Here's how the God-centered church works. Ready? And I, I get this uh, little, I didn't make this story up. I changed it a little bit. But there's a book called The Vine and Trellis which you should get. It's fantastic. And the whole purpose of it is to say there's vine work and there's trellis work. Like for a vine to grow, there needs to be a trellis to, to grow on. But often we're only talking about the programs and things. And we're not actually talking about the real work of the vine. But imagine this, and this has happened to me. You're not going to like this, but just go with me. On a given Sunday, someone comes up to me and says, hey, I'd like to get more involved at Restoration Road. I've been here a while. I really want to make my contribution, but it just feels like there's nothing I can do. I don't know, like, I don't know what gifts I have or talents. I don't know. And I'm not, 
it's clear I'm not on the inside circle. There's a circle that I'm not in. So I, I feel like I can't, you know, um, be on any ministry teams. I'm not, I, no one's asked me to lead a Bible study. So what can I do? Can you help me? Now, there's been times, and I've certainly done it now, where like, what would you say to them? Like your mind would be like, well, I know we have needs on the coffee team. Uh, you could serve there, or like roadies, or uh, I mean, we'd set up for communion, or do you, are you a musician? Can you play on the worship team? You start talking about teams and programs. Where are the holes? Like, okay, you could fit here, probably fit here. But what if we thought in the terms of Titus 2? So here's a response that I could give. Let's just say Joe person comes up, Jane person, not to be, you know, just get them both. They come up, they say, I want to be involved. I do, oh, okay. And I say, you know what? Joe, see that guy sitting over there? His name's Philbert. Great guy. There's a Philbert here, sorry. But Philbert, um, that's, that's Tina's husband, and he's been here for a while, and um, he's kind of just on the fringe of things here. In fact, I'm not sure he's really fully surrendered to Jesus. I'm not sure how much he knows about the Bible. He's been asking a lot of questions, but I don't think, he's, uh, I don't think Jesus has saved him yet. How about I introduce you to Philbert, and then we can arrange for you guys to have breakfast once a week, and you can actually meet with him and then read your Bible together. You know what the response would be? What? what? <laughs> Can I just like serve coffee? Or like, you, you need kids' help, don't you? Well, I'll be downstairs. Like, to sit with someone and, and open the Bible with them and say, this is what this means. This is how you read this and answer the question. Terrifying. But commanded. The mark of a healthy church. We're not talking about programs. We're talking about good old-fashioned discipleship. And the motivations to do it have very little to do with basically um, how does it benefit me. And we see that what Paul writes here. Like it's about a God-centered mentality. That, I'm not talking about mark of a healthy church. It's God-centered, full of God-centered people doing God-centered things. In a God-centered church, Christians bring the truth of God's Word to someone else, praying that God would make that Word bear fruit through God's Spirit. And it's interesting, you see when, when Paul talks about these motivations, as you get later in Titus there in verse 5 and in verse 8 and verse 10, the so that's come up. Why would the older women do this? So that. Why would the older men do this? So that. Why would the slaves do this. A word about slaves, I realize that, like, again, that could be its own sermon. And unfortunately, slavery at this time gets filtered by how we understand slavery kind of in our um, 19th century mentality. And it's not a one-to-one -one similarity. It's not exactly the same. It's very different. It's not purely ethnic or racial. Uh, it's often very economic. And there's just, just a lot of, it's complicated. So it's hard for us to like, slavery, that's interesting. But you understand like the church of God has all these people in it. Has men, women, young, old, slaves, masters in the same church. And so it's, it's complicated. And so what it, mainly for us, like, yes, I could go off on a sermon which I ought to say racism is evil and sinful and wrong. 
But that's not the purpose that we're talking about here. And maybe in our understanding, we could say like those who are in, you could apply it to vocations, those who are in jobs, who are working and, and feel oppressed, if you will, certainly not the same as oppressive slavery. But again, many of these people who are in slavery, bond servants have chosen to go into slavery to be uh, pay off debt or to be released after a certain number of years. So it's complicated. All that to say, notice what the motivations for faithfulness in that situation is. And the motivation for the older and younger women to do what they're supposed to do. Older and younger women, verse 5, are called to live and to teach others to live godly lives so that the Word of God may not be reviled. What's it about? It's about the Word of God. It's not about your comfort. It's not about your convenience. It's not about your approval. It's not about you feeling good that Jesus loves you. It's about the Word of God. That the Word of God is not slandered. So the Word of God is, is revealed to be true and meaningful. Older, men and old, uh, older and younger men are called to live and to teach others to live godly lives so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing to say evil about us, the church, the people of God. So the motivation to disciple and to invest ourselves into one another is for the glory of the Word of God, for the glory of the people of God, and what else? Slaves. To be faithful in everything, submissive in everything, not argumentative, not stealing. That's like something you could have in your job. Why? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of of God our Savior. So what it's about? It's about the Word of God. It's about the people of God. It's about the Savior God. It's about making the Gospel more beautiful. Making the Word of God more beautiful. Making the church, the people of God, more beautiful, more trustworthy, more certain. And so... As we wrap this up, I think it's fair to challenge you to test yourselves. Assess yourselves. We all need to take an introspective look and say, okay, am I working properly? And I don't mean, are you serving in a ministry at the church? Men, older men, younger men, where are you teaching or learning from other men to live sensibly, self-controlled, godly lives? Women, older or younger, where are you teaching or learning from other women to live sensibly, self-controlled, godly lives? Who is teaching you how to grow in your faith or who are you showing how to grow in your faith? Who are you showing what it means to love like Jesus? Or who is watching you suffer as you talk about what's happening in your suffering? Who is showing you how to serve your family or how to be faithful at work? Who are you teaching or who are you learning from? Who's watching you? Like, if you knew, like let's just say hypothetically, which is my trick way of saying actually is true, 
Hypothetically, if Jesus had given a really simple command that's really difficult to misunderstand, which is to go make disciples, ask yourself where you're living that out. And to be fair, some are. Some are faithfully. Some are in ways that no one knows about but you and no one needs to know about. But before the Lord, where is this happening? Because I will tell you this, failure, or say failing or refusing to do what the Lord commands us in this regard is not just a private decision with personal consequences. We are so much about individualized spirituality in this culture. It's my personal relationship with Jesus, and, and I'm just going to like my experience at church and what I, my interpretation. That is so unbiblical. Because your personal decision as a member or regular tender or a part of this body to not make disciples and work properly has an effect on all of us, the Bible says. It says it hinders our growth, hinders my growth, hinders your growth in our pursuit of maturity in Christ as we grow up. And it also makes us vulnerable. So the real work of church is actually people work where people prayerfully speak His Word to another person who in turn one day speaks it to another person. And that job is never done. Jesus is always hiring. The opportunities to minister are well beyond Sunday mornings, well beyond quarterly events. They are limitless. And in speaking with Andrew, who leads our discipleship and leadership development, he is actually looking for, praying about a small team of disciple makers who he can train to be disciple makers, who will be able to not just disciple, but train others to be disciple makers. And if you're really interested in that, you're like, you know what? I don't have an excuse. Now, if he gets like 17,000 emails, that'd be rad. But email andrew at rdchurch.com. Some of us need to be courageous enough to pursue discipleship and others need to be humble enough to invite it. Without doubt, discipleship is a sacrifice. To do what is right and loving has a cost. The gospel teaches us as much. But we empty ourselves for one another because Jesus emptied Himself for us. And discipleship is not the the prerequisite for Jesus to love you. Being a disciple maker is not the, the requisite so that you are, you know, a Christian. It's actually our response, a very natural response to grace. I want you to understand that when Paul went to Damascus to arrest Christians, do you know he was searching for? He was going and had permission to arrest people of the way. Interesting name. The implication is that they lived a different way than those around them. They related to one another in a different way. And I would argue that that way is described very clearly in Titus 2. These people loved each other, they taught each other, and they went on mission together. It's a certain way to live that is inspired by the grace of Jesus. And I'll prove that by this closing verse. At the end of Titus, which I'll unpack next week, 
Titus verse 11, it tells us where the power comes to do this, where the motivation truly comes to do this. Right? All this elders are going to be teachers and older men and older women and young, they're going to do all these things. And why? Verse 11, for. For. Something's happened to make this possible. For the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, man, that word came up a lot, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And I am fulfilling what he tells Titus to say. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. If you're a member of this body, and by that I mean you consider yourself a member of this body, you are called to make disciples. And there's lots of ways that to work out, but you need to work it out. And if you need help, We're here to help you. Let's pray.